This is Dr. Chalmers. Welcome to Wellness Insights with me, Dr. Chalmers. All right, we're going to keep going through all of our stuff. We have lots and lots of questions, people asking about the opioid epidemic since I did my TED Talk, so which go watch that. It's spectacular. And send it to everyone you know. We have to start a new national conversation about cannabis and pushing back into the opioid epidemic. And if you don't understand how bad the opioid epidemic is, go to Netflix and watch Painkiller. It's going to give you all the information you need. It is dramatized, but the vast majority of the thrust of what they're telling you is 100% accurate. All right. Uh, okay, so we talked about this a little bit in my TED Talk. How, how do uh, I address the concern about dosing cannabis? So the problem we get into is that if you're just smoking flour, smoking joints, that type of thing, um, it's real hard to get 5 or 10 milligrams. It, it really is. Um, again, the whole joint's not going to hurt you, but if you're a little bit too high to function and you're laughing all the time, you're not going to get you through your day. Um, so gummies can kind of do this, not great, but if you find low dose gummies, five milligram, that type of thing, that's fantastic. Um, but the strips, the sublingual strips that I like the so if you're, if you're out and about game eight strips.com, uh, that's a Delta eight strip. It is at the moment legal in 30 something States. So I would grab as much as you can because they're going to make that illegal. Uh, probably by the end of this year. And they have no plans of making uh, cannabis legal for medical in any of the states where it's going to be illegal. So grab what you can because you're going to need it. Um, the way the strips work is that you can cut them in half, in thirds. You can cut a sixth. You can cut just a little tiny sliver off. Um, and that's that's the way that we dose it because you you know it's a, it's a 20 milligram, 25 milligram strip, depending on what you're getting. And so if you cut it in half, so obviously math, if it's a 20 milligram cut in half, it's 10 and 10. You can't really do that with gummies though. Um, the way that it works with gummies is that they kind of clump up that the, the active ingredient kind of clumps up. And so if you have a gummy like this and it's all over here, if you cut it in half, all this can be here. None of it's going to be over here or you're going to get 70, 30. It's very, very difficult to dose them with gummies, but with the strips, since they're evenly applied, you can cut them up like that and be really consistent. So you can know I need a third of a strip to go to sleep. I need a quarter of a strip to do this. Um, so that's that's been really good. Uh, one of the ladies found out that we gave this to, she found out that a third of the strip would have the same pain-fighting power as a 10-milligram oxy, um, which is pretty impressive because that's 10 milligrams of basically heroin. Um, heroin and oxy are the same strength. They're stronger than uh, morphine. Uh, morphine is a one on the scale, and heroin and oxy are about a six or seven. So it's, it's fentanyl, by the way, is 179. So fentanyl is ridiculously stronger. Um, and it's used all the time in hospitals to help knock people out. It is a functional drug. It is needed for surgery. It should never be on the street, though. Um, so that's how we address the, the, the dosage uh, piece. Now, the fun thing is, is that, so let's say that you have a pain. And let's say it's in your son. And you give them a little bit and it doesn't quite get, cover it. You can give them a little bit more. And okay, now I know. Now I know I need to give him a quarter of a strip or, you know, a fifth of a strip or whatever to combat this issue. This, the, you know, that's how we did it with his surgery. I gave him a little bit. He was like, it helped, but not really. I gave him a little bit more. And he was like, okay, that helped. And so I was like, okay, those two added together is what we needed. And so that's how we dosed it. Um, really, really simple. So, and I talk about, uh, I talk about that in the TED Talk. Um, so like, we'll add that clip in here just so you can see about what I did with my son. Um, the solution I, what solution did I, I give the sublingual cannabis strips? Um, that's, that's it. Uh, game eight strips.com. 
Uh, we have a couple of groups that we're talking to about doing actual real pain studies with them. Uh, and so hopefully we'll have a specific one tailored specifically for uh, pain in California soon. If uh, the rest of the country can get on board with decriminalizing medical use nationally, we'll be able to ship those strips all over the U.S. and people can use those instead of opioids for all their pain. Uh, the re- what's the advantage of subliminal strips? It gets in your body a lot faster. Um, you don't have to smoke it so it doesn't damage your lungs. You don't have to vape it so it doesn't damage your lungs and throat and mouth and all that type of stuff. Um, and it doesn't go through what's called first pass, which is where it has to go through the liver first. So um, it's a lot cleaner, a lot safer way of doing it. Uh, it's faster and there's no smoking involved. So it's awesome. How does the administration of cannabis via sublingual strips differ from the methods of gummies and pills? Just kind of answered that one. Um, What's the typical activation time for sublingual strips uh, compared to other forms? Uh, oral stuff that you're going to do. So gummies and brownies and cookies and stuff like that. 30 to 45 minutes before you get functional activation. Strips, you're going to look at anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes. just depends. Um, so under the tongue or on the cheek. If you put them on your tongue, you're just going to swallow most of it. So under the tongue or on the cheek, in the front of the gums also works as well, um, like a dip. But that's, uh, that's how we do that one. How do I refute the notion that cannabis produces substantial unwanted psychological effects? Um, because all of the research that says it does is bullshit. Um, it is hilarious. Like I read one about how it causes... Uh, you know, oh, what was it? Uh, schizophrenia. Like, well, he, the problem was is that when you read the research, like we had these six people and they like cannabis and they all ended up with schizophrenia when they got older. So, you know, is that the cause? Um, it did not discuss any psychological trauma. It did not discuss any uh, genetic uh, run. So like, did, did the parents have it? Did the grandparents have it? Have uh, schizophrenia? Um, there was no studies beforehand. They were just like, hey, you know, we found these kids and they ended up with schizophrenia and they liked cannabis. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you take a thousand kids. They all like cannabis and then six of them end up being uh, schizophrenic. And so you single those guys out and say it was because of the cannabis. That's trash. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, there are no real research that shows any deficit because of cannabis ever. Um, all the ones are trying to say, well, you know what? These kids smoked a lot of pot when they were, 13 and now they're dumb. Okay. What? There's a lot of people I know who were smart when they were 13 that are dumb now because they just didn't apply themselves. So trying to say that it was because of the cannabis is foolish. Uh, I have tons of people that I know who I think are really smart lawyers and doctors and engineers who've been using cannabis since they were teenagers. So I, I have not seen any research and I read research all the time and I would 100% not get into this and put my name behind it if I had any research that said that it did anything negative. Um, one of the things we do see a lot is that people like it. They like the way they, the person they are on it. They like the way they feel. They think that they're more calm, more relaxed, that they, they laugh easier. And they think, hey, those qualities are something I want in my life. That was my decision. I like the person I am when I'm on cannabis. Now, here, you know, let's, let's walk through this one real quick. There's a difference between having one shot of vodka and seven martinis. If you have seven martinis, you're going to be hammered. You're going to be drunk and sloppy and silly. And yes, you're drunk and you're hammered. If you have one shot of vodka, are you drunk? Most of us is going to say no. Are you under the influence of alcohol? I still have lots of people who are like, not really, because you don't have the effects. I'll grant you, yes, you're under the influence of alcohol. Now, here's where we get into it. If you consume a little bit of cannabis, 
Are you high? That's a question we're all going to have to answer. This is why I want a new national conversation about cannabis. Because I would tell you that if no one can tell and you're just relaxed and you're calm and you can function, that you're not high. Now, when you're sitting on the couch and your pink eyes are pink and you can barely see through them and you can't move and you're laughing at everything, yeah, you're high. Yeah, there you go. You're high. But there's a therapeutic range in here where you don't have any pain. Your stress is gone. You're relaxed. You can finally calm down. You can digest all your food. You can just be at peace with the world around you. You can laugh a little bit easier. In this case, yes, you're under the influence, but I wouldn't consider you high. Again, we're going to need to come up with a definition. We all can agree on that one. But like being drunk, you can look at somebody who's had one shot and be like, I don't think you're drunk. And then we all know what drunk looks like. So I think that we need to have that conversation in there as well. Under the influence versus high. That's kind of how we, how we kind of look at that one. Which part of the brain does cannabis have the ability to affect and how does this impact anxiety? Well, if you specifically are talking about anxiety, that's the amygdala. So the amygdala is in the temporal lobe, and it is responsible for all the bad things in the world. Fear, hate, anger, terror, stress, anxiety, all that stuff. Um, so that's the big issue with, uh, with how it affects the brain. It affects the amygdala, and we want it to affect the amygdala. It does not affect the pons, like I said earlier, so you can continue to breathe as much as you want to. Um, it has more impact on the temporal lobe than anything else which is really good uh, because that's where epilepsy, epilepsy comes from. So we can actually suppress temporal firing, uh, which a, so a seizure is uh, abnormal uh, firing in the temporal lobe. Okay. So if we can decrease firing in the temporal lobe, guess what? All of a sudden we've decreased seizures and that's what we see with all of cannabis and epilepsy. So that's why epilepsy and cannabis work so well together uh, because of that, that suppression of, uh, abnormal firing in the temporal lobe. Um, it does have some suppression function to the frontal lobe. So uh, you're not going to be able to think nearly as, you know, about, you know, depending on your, how much you've consumed and where you're at, you know, you might have anywhere from zero to 10% functional command loss. Um, I will tell you that uh, as a personal thing, something I'm super not proud of, uh, there's been lots and lots of times in my youth where I would drink too much and then drive home. I know it's stupid. It's the worst thing I've ever done. It's terrible. Um, but I've never consumed cannabis and then thought, you know, I should drive. In fact, there's been a couple of times where I was supposed to leave at a certain time and I went, no, I don't feel like I, I, I'm good to drive. I'm going to wait 30 minutes, which has never happened with cannabis, with, with, with alcohol. Um, so as far as making bad decisions, I have not seen it. You're going to say silly stuff because that you think is profound, but that's about it. And the worst thing you're going to do is eat too much. That's from what we've seen. That's basically what's going on. Um, oh, how much do I emphasize the importance of shutting off the amygdala? My entire practice is based around so quality of life, um, like wellness is the quality of life over time. Uh, shutting off stress is the number one thing I try to do. And so shutting down the amygdala, calming it down, the thing that tells you that everything is terrible, that you're, you're scared, that you have stress, that, you know, all the negative things, fear, hate, anger, terror, how bad, how much, how important is shutting that off? Really important, really important. So yeah, like this is a daily thing. Like we should start working on this. Uh, how do I connect anxiety and stress to the function of the amygdala? I just kind of told you, uh, it is directly 100% linked. Um, 
so I will tell you this. This is kind of silly joke, but it's also kind of silly true. Um, I will consider cannabis a, uh, a nutrient um, because the definition of nutrient is something that the body requires in order to function normally and survive. If you didn't have any cannabinoids in your body, your brain would no longer work. Your endocannabinoid system, which is inside of you right now, regardless if you've ever consumed cannabis, it is in there and we're using cannabinoids to make the brain and spinal cord function. Your entire CNS is directly dependent upon those chemicals to function. So adding in a different cannabinoid structure that helps your body to function, that helps your brain to function in the way that we want to, I'm going to consider that a nutrient. Tongue in cheek, kind of funny, kind of true, that type of thing. So, but that's, that's just a fun thing that I like to throw out. Um, all right. How did I personally encounter the issues we discuss in the talk? I have tons of stress. Like, you know, when you're launching multiple companies, when you're trying to keep people alive, when people text you in the middle of the night and their kids just in a car wrecks and stuff like that. And you know, these kids, there's a lot of kids that I've been working on. I've, I've been doing this for 16 years. Like there are kids who are driving today that I met when they were born. Um, it's, you know, and I'm not there in their family, but you know, when you work with somebody and you know, somebody for 10 or 15 years, you get kind of close to them. So, you know, there's that type of thing. So, um, I like, I love cannabis for the, for the stress relief piece. Um, I've quit drinking alcohol cause you know, take it however you want to, if it helps your life, fantastic. Uh, there's too much research for me right now to say that it's worth taking. It's worth consuming. Um, I still do a very little, um, but as far as stress goes, I'll take a strip. Um, and that is by far my favorite way to go. Um, I personally use it all the time to help with stress, um, help with pain, that type of thing. So it's, it's a big deal. So what was the reason I gave my 10 year old son? Uh, why did he have the surgery? Uh, he, cause he's my son and he does silly things. Um, uh, and he fell off a merry-go-round and broke his arm. Uh, he had a surgery and had a plate and six screws put in his arm. Um, and when he first had it done, we didn't have the strips and we had to give him opioids. And I'm not, not happy about that. Um, but after he had the surgery, uh, we, we, we had the surgery to have the plate and six screws removed. Um, there was no choice. There was no, there was no way I was going to give him opioids. Um, so we gave him the strips and it worked just fine. Uh, and we talk about it in the Ted talk, so I'll play that clip, but yeah, so that was the reason, um, I'm not giving my kids opioids ever again, ever. Um, watch painkiller if you're worried about why. So this is a great question. How did I approach the dilemma of using opioids for my son's pain management? Um, I talk about this a little bit in the, in the Ted talk. So we'll play that clip now. So I was really worried about however I was going to think, whatever I was going to think, if I was going to get in trouble, um, you know, I, I, I'm not giving my kids opioids. I'm just not going to do it. Uh, and so we gave him the strips. I knew he was going to tell people what he did. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, man, the, the, I was very, very surprised. Um, all of the parents came up to me and were like, that was really smart. Um, they were like, we don't want to give our kids opioids either. Uh, and we got to talk about it. And what's funny is that, you know, my, my kids go to a really amazing small Christian school in the center of Texas. So, you know, that's one of those things where you're like, oh, what are people going to think? I don't, you know, 
and I really love the school and I really didn't want to have any problems. And everyone's been super cool about it. They were like, that was really smart. Um, you know, that was, it was the best way to go, not giving your kids opioids. And so we got to talk about it. And now all the parents are on board. Now they all understand. They've, they've looked through the research. There's a bunch of docs. There's a bunch of really, really smart people in the school. And we're all kind of on, on the same page. And so I was, I was wrong to assume that the people around me were just going to think it was bad. Um, and so since then, I've spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people. And I have not found anyone who's against the medical use of cannabis. And I've started to look. I'm trying to find somebody who's like, no, no. We should just use opioids. We should not allow for cannabis use by doctors. Um, I'd love to know what their argument is. Uh, I just haven't found anybody who actively is saying that doctors shouldn't have access to cannabis. So um, I think those stereotypes are going to change. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff on stereotypes in a minute, but that was, that was a big piece for me. I was very, very happy to see the outpouring of support for any alternative to opioids and how little people cared in a negative manner, lots of them were super positive, but no one really had any negative issues with it. Like it was really, really refreshing. And I'm really happy about it. Um, how did it affect, uh, uh, my son's pain management a lot? Um, I mean, so this is more, and I have all the pictures if, if any of you want to throw up, but, um, I had them take pictures of it while they were doing it. Um, they had to chip the bone off of his plate, uh, because the bone had started growing over it. So, Imagine that so they, they make an incision about this long. They, they pry it open so they can get to the, they can get inside and they can start working on the actual bones. And they had to take a chisel and literally like chip away at the bone that's in there before they could even unscrew the screws. And when it got done, so you can see this, the, the incision and you can see the bone and there's holes. There's six holes in the, but like not like small holes, like big old holes where those screws used to be all the way through. And so then they put it back together. What happened the first time that he had the surgery when they put him in is that he had a reaction to the, um, to the dissolvable strips, I'm sorry, the dissolvable sutures they used. And so it opened up and we had this wound issue. And so he had this giant scar. It was like three quarters of an inch this way by the entire like six inch length of the scar. So what they did is they did like a, a scar revision where they just cut off that skin. So he had to have the bone chipped away. He had six giant holes in the actual bone. He had a, about a one inch by five inch or something, maybe six inches cut out and then sewn back together. That's, that's what the surgery was. So everybody understands this was not like pulling a splinter out. This was a major actual surgery to a 10 year old. Um, and then what we ended up doing was we just cut, little strips and I gave him little strips and he was fine. Whenever he would be like, Hey dad, my arm's starting to hurt. I would give him a little strip and he put it under his tongue. It would dissolve in and he'd be fine. 10 or 15 minutes later, I'd be like, Hey, how's your arm? He'd be like, Oh, it's fine. And he would go back to reading. And I was making sure that he wasn't getting high. Cause I want to make sure the dose was right. And I would talk to him and stuff like that. And he was his normal silly self, but anything, nothing I would consider that was an added bonus. No, no, no high issues. So, it was, it worked out really, really well. Um, um, what observations I make about the son's experience with sublingual strips in terms of psychological effects. Um, this is how I knew that now I'd use them on me and I'd use them on my friends and I've used them on everybody else. But when I gave them to my son, um, for his issues, that's really when I knew, I knew for a fact, this is our replacement for opioids. This is it. 
My 10-year-old's not high. He's talking normally. He's reading his book. He's remembering everything he read. He has no pain. This is what we need to be doing. This is it. This is where we need to go. Um, it, the observation was that um, we have our solution. I'm, I'm, I'm done looking. This is it. We need everybody to know. We need to have a new national conversation about this. We need to be using these in everybody so that we don't have the addiction issues. We don't have the death issues and we can bring everybody back together. We can rebuild and stabilize our families. So hundred percent, it was super critical. Um, it, it changed the way I think about it. It to it, it 100%. I know now that this is the medication we should be using. So that's, that was the observation I made and that's what it changed. So, um, how do I react to the idea of having more comprehensive information about cannabis? 100% we need it. 100%. We need more research. We, and, and we're trying right now uh, to get our cannabis strips in for pain research in California. Uh, we're pretty sure that's going to get knocked out. I will talk about that more than you guys want to hear. Um, but because, I, like I said, man, we, we've got it. We've got we've to give options other than opioids. Um, you know, it's, we just, we have to, um, so, but no, we need all the information we can. Um, I'd love PET scan function. I'd love long-term studies. I, you know, all of it, like we need is, but I'm, I'm an information guy. Like I want, I want more information, not less. Um, I think the bigger paint picture you paint, the more dots you have, the easier it is to see patterns. Uh, the easier it is to see function. So I would love to do more research. If you guys are doing research out there, actual research, get hooked up with us. I'll give you the strips to test with. Um, let's get it knocked out. Let's make this stuff work. Um, what statistical evidence do I have regarding the impact of cannabis legalization? Um, there's an NIH study. Um, by the way, real quick, for those of you who don't understand, you don't get to just say whatever you want to in a TED Talk. When you do a TED Talk, every single thing you say, if you don't have solid research to back it up, they will t- kick your talk out. You don't get to, they don't, they won't publish it. So every Ted talk that's published, the research has been looked at, reviewed and proven to be functional accurate. So that's the deal. So there was a, there was a research study that showed 24%. Um, so the, the states that legalize cannabis see a 24% drop in opioid overdose deaths within the first year. Um, that is significant. Uh, and you know, so that was from the National Institute of Health. And again, remember, if we think that there's any bias, they're biased against cannabis, not for it. So that 24% number might be higher, but it's pretty solid. Um, so yeah, so, but here's the thing. People who know, now that the doctors are starting to know and people are starting to know, people choose cannabis over opioids every time we can. So I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out as a doctor, am I going to give you something that was going to kill you and make you addicted to it and make me a terrible, horrible human being? Or am I going to give you access to something that's not going to kill you and not going to make you addicted to something? Of course, the doctors are going to choose cannabis if they can. That's the thing. So it doesn't make any sense that the numbers wouldn't get better because if doctors have access to things that are going to make our, going to make our patients healthy and function, that's the one we're going to choose. So, of course, the numbers are going to come down tremendously. All right. What societal impact does the decrease in opioid prescriptions do to the cannabis legalization highlight? Okay, here's the thing. If we can decrease the prescriptions written, we're going to decrease the addiction. We're going to decrease the death. 
So what it ends up looking like is if a doctor has another option, this is, this is the amount of prescriptions written is really a how do the doctors use this? That's what this question is. So if you have a million prescriptions for, for drug X, but it's killing people and horrible and terrible, but there's no options, guess what? Next year, you're probably going to have a million prescriptions for drug X. But if all of a sudden something comes along, you're like, hey, look, this is now legal. It is super safe. It will take care of the pain just like drug X, but it won't kill anybody. The doctors are going to write whatever's not drug X. Will this help my patient? Yes. Will it keep them from dying? Yes. This is my new first choice. And that's where we need to go. This should really highlight that the doctors want cannabis. The doctors are using cannabis instead of opioids. The doctors who are supposed to know what they're doing are choosing cannabis. Now, one of the things I will tell you, the only thing I didn't like about the painkiller deal is that the the light it puts some of the medical doctors in. What you have to understand is that all doctors want to help people. That's why they got into what they're doing. We didn't have anything to help them with. Yeah, pain sucks. Pain's terrible. And for a while, we all thought, hey, this is great. This is working. And then we, they found out that it wasn't. So that's the only downside. But as soon as docs have another, a, an option that's better, they'll use it. That's why I'm trying to highlight the fact that people died less when they had cannabis instead of opioids. It's a greater choice. It's the better choice. The doctors know it and they're going to use it. The more people find out about cannabis, the more we change the perceptions of the 40 years of telling people how bad it was. And now we give them the real information. I think you're going to see this get even, even better. Uh, what significant change do I believe is necessary regarding our cultural view of cannabis? We need to talk about this more. We need to have the real information out. We need to have experts like I, I will go talk to anybody on any podcast. I will debate anybody that wants to know. Let's sit down. And let's talk about this. Let's talk about it. We've been telling the, the government's been telling us for since I was a kid, since the late seventies and the eighties, that cannabis is the worst possible thing in the world. It's a gateway drug. You know, you're going to smoke one joint and then you're going to be crazy. You're going to smoke one joint and then it's straight to crack, which is never panned out in any real research. I know a lot of people who were like, I used to do Coke, but I really like cannabis. I quit doing Coke and now I do cannabis. I quit drinking alcohol because of cannabis. So, I mean, the, we just need to talk about this more. We need to, if, we are, if our culture can have another conversation about it, a real honest conversation, that's what's important. Uh, why do I emphasize the importance of keeping an open mind and addressing the opioid uh, crisis? Um, because we've all been told that cannabis is terrible for you and it's going to kill you and be horrible. If we don't keep an open mind to the idea that maybe the information we got earlier was either highly biased a flat lie or just wrong. If we don't keep an open mind to that, we're always going to be sitting here thinking, yes, but my school principal and all the, all the after school specials told me that cannabis was really bad for us. I've been indoctrinated. I've been brainwashed. I've, I've had that hit in my skull for 20 years. Yeah. Sorry. I hate to be the person who tells you this, but sometimes the government lies to you and sometimes the government's wrong. We need to kind of rethink what we, what we thought we knew. Because in this case, it's very, very, very obvious that we were, that it was, the information we got was bad. And we need to, we need to open our minds and think about this again. <laughs> All right. Uh, what is the meaning of me referencing Albert Einstein's quote in the context of the opioid crisis? Um, so let's play that quote. Okay. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that 
we're slamming our heads against the wall. We all know the opioid epidemic is terrible. We all know it's horrible. And the idea that we're just going to continue to give people opioids because that's what we do. That's the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and expecting different results is insanity. So that's, I think, one of Einstein's quotes as well. But the thing is, is that when we look at the opioid epidemic, if we don't start to change the way we think about it, we're going to end up reciting and continue to do the same thing. The thinking we use that got us into the opioid epidemic, if we don't change that thinking, we're never going to get out of it. We're never going to fix it. We have to have a new level of thinking. We have to start thinking, hey, by the way, highly addictive things that affect the pawns is probably not something we should hand out on a mass scale. Maybe. I mean, that's a, I, it's a pretty solid thought in my opinion, but that's not what we're thinking right now. So, you know, that's, that's, we're going to have to change the way we think about cannabis and about opioids if we're going to solve this issue. What message do I leave the audience with at the end of his talk? Um, I hope that I gave you some information that maybe would help you rethink it. Um, maybe would allow parents and kids and doctors and patients to have another conversation. Be like, look, we learn new things all the time. And sometimes when we learn new things, we find out that the old things we thought we knew were wrong. Let's have this talk. Let's, let's sit down and be like, Hey, you know, maybe we need to do this differently. I will tell you as, 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 as a kid who's been told by his parents for, you know, since I was born that cannabis or marijuana or whatever is horrible and terrible. You should never, ever use it. Now going through and watching my parents talk about how beneficial it is and listening to them talk to other people about how, you know, they should get off their opioids and use cannabis. It's really, it's really, really nice. I'm hoping that the rest of the baby boomers and the rest of people, my generation and can get together and have this conversation and be like, we need to move in a different direction. We need to move away from opioids and towards cannabis. And if we come up with something that's even safer than cannabis, great. We can use that. I don't care. We just got to get off the opioids. Cannabis is just the most obvious solution because it has so many benefits and so actually so few negatives. We really need to kind of move in that direction. So um, I hope that that's kind of what we left the audience with was that, you know, we need to have a new conversation about this. So, you know, like I'm open for whatever, whenever I'd love to talk about this. I, you know, I talk about this on cannabis talk. I talk about this with everybody else, but we all need to start having this discussion because we need to legalize uh, medical cannabis, and we need to start using it in instead of opioids. Like doctors need to be prescribing cannabis instead of opioids. So hopefully that's what everybody got. So that's all the questions we got. That was a lot of questions, but apparently if you put a TED Talk out, people have questions. So uh, if you guys have any questions, hit us up, questions at chalmerswellness.com. Thanks.